Well, we began asking a question last week, a question that uh, we'll be pursuing in one way or another for some weeks yet. It was this. Why are Christians not more transformed? Why, why do we not enjoy more of what God um, uh, uh, appears to offer us? Why are we not more like the Christians that... Uh, Uh, walked the earth 2,000 years ago and changed the world. Let's put it in a slightly more positive way though. How can we really live the life that God is calling us to? That's what we're really saying. How can we as Christians really live as Christians? The New Testament sets before us glorious vistas, doesn't it? Of victory over sins, of contentment in in either riches or poverty, of peace in a world of turmoil, of happiness amidst persecution, of joy which even faces death with equanimity. Yet too often, frankly, we feel like um, children looking through the keyhole into a room which is full of laughter and delight and yet we, we, we lack the key to enter that room. We said last week, Romans, Romans 1 to 8, in many ways, is, is a, the fullest explanation we have of how to enter that room of blessing that God sets before us. It's the key to why those Christians were so joyful and within a single generation um, transformed the world forever. Romans 1 to 8 is Paul, Paul's clearest explanation, actually, of two things which are distinct and yet intimately related. The first is found in chapters 1 to 4. In those chapters, he explains how we can be right with God. How our relationship with God can be restored. And then he goes on in chapters 5 to 8 to explain the life that we can then enjoy after we have been put right with God. And Romans 8 is the, is the pinnacle, a pinnacle of that great argument. Last week we saw it begins with a brief summary of chapters 1 to 4. We won't go over it again, but we saw that uh, um, Paul says that we can be put so right with God that actually God has pronounced his final verdict on our life right now and it is not guilty. It is no condemnation. He has forgiven all of our sins, past, present and future. There is therefore now, he says, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It was all because Christ died on the cross for our sins. And because he paid for every one of those sins, past, present and future, we are forgiven. God does not punish sins twice. If he has punished them in Christ, he will not punish them in us. But God's project in our life is not just to forgive our sins. He's also determined to actually make us good. We will not be good enough ever to cease needing the forgiveness that he has explained uh, already this side of uh, uh, eternity. 
but God is determined that we should be substantially changed. We could put it, put, put it um, uh, uh, this way. We could say God is determined to doubly defeat sin. He explains that very clearly in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8 here. What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. So in verse 3, he says we are forgiven. We are forgiven because God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering or, or actually more accurately for sin. Now that, now that is actually meat and drink to an average evangelical uh, congregation and we've already talked about it. Uh, spoken about it. Sin is, sin is defeated in that, that first way because it no longer has the power to condemn us. Christ took our condemnation. Theologians like to call that, um, uh, that, that uh, idea justification. We are put right with God, we are justified, we are forgiven. But God, God says, Paul says here, that um, our sins have a further defeat Christ won our forgiveness, he says, and defeated sin in that way, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In order that we should be good. And the law here that he's speaking about, of course, is God's revealed will for us, especially uh, as it's set out in the Old Testament law. And Paul is not saying, quite specifically, that we are forgiven in order to go back to minutely observe all those Old Testament laws in the, uh, in the Old Testament that you find, that would be completely ridiculous because uh, time has moved on, the particular circumstances have moved on and many of the specifics of those laws are no longer relevant. But he says the underlying righteous requirements of those laws, of that law, are eternally relevant. And God is going to see to it that the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us. Now, Jesus made it plain, didn't he, that, that the law always itself was, was actually calling us to those deeper righteous requirements. Do you remember he said that the, the Old Testament prohibition on murder was actually drawing us to realise that actually all anger against other people is against uh, God's law. Well, do you remember he spoke about the uh, prohibition of adultery, uh, which he said was drawing us actually to see that all lust, actually all mistreatment, either actual or mental, of the opposite sex is against God's law. No, said Jesus, you must be more righteous than the Pharisees who only actually go for the details. Or as Paul puts it here, we must have the righteous requirements of the law fully met 
in our lives. That second thing, that God is determined to uh, achieve in us, we could call transformation, the theologians like to call it sanctification. And our first instinct, frankly, is that those don't fit together very well. Surely, we say to ourselves, if we really believe this New Testament message of justification, that all our sins, past, present and future, are utterly and totally forgiven, if we really believe that, then that will encourage us to go off doing all sorts of unmentionable things. Surely we say that we, we need to dangle a bit of, bit of the dark possibility of uh, punishment in front of our eyes to, uh, um, uh, to stop us actually being bad now, to achieve our sanctification. How could we possibly be made good if we are assured there that all our sins are forgiven? And Paul actually says, is saying, it doesn't work like that. It works counterintuitively. The message of complete forgiveness actually is the door which opens us up to real transformation. Let me try to explain. Suppose a father has a wayward teenage son. Suppose that father punishes his son for the things that, he, that, that he's done wrong and um, he says to him, if you go on doing this, I frankly, I'm going to throw you out of the house. I'm going to give you absolutely no hope, uh, help I will disown you from this family. I will refuse ever to talk to you again. I will withdraw my love from you and you will be on your own. You'd better watch out, my boy. Because if you go on like that, I will not call you my boy. I will have nothing to do with you. And in the short term, actually, sometimes the fear of... uh, Uh, threats like that, does curb the worst excesses of uh, young people's behaviour. But actually it starts to break a bond between father and son. And actually, in the longer term, that son is far more likely to be a delinquent than a dropout. I, I actually deal with the fallout of parenting like that every week see the damage it does in people and the way it doesn't really make them new or good. Suppose actually that father says, says something a bit different. Suppose he says this. Suppose he says, you will always be my son. I will always love you. Son, I have to discipline you because this behaviour that, 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 that you, are, uh, you are doing is unacceptable, it's damaging to you, it is damaging to others, it will lead you to disaster. I have to discipline you, but I'm never, ever going to cease to own you as my son 
I'm never going to stop loving you. In that relationship too, I, I, can, I can assure you there may well be stormy days ahead but if that boy really believes what his father has said, he'll be okay. Because he knows he is a forgiven person. He is a loved person. He has a home. He has a family. See, many of us live actually in lots of ways as if God was that first kind of father. No wonder actually we find it so hard to love him. We find it so hard to be transformed. Because frankly that sort of parenting produces monsters like Hitler. It fills up the homelessness hostels in every city in this country because it damages people deeply and it gives them no ability actually to change. But for Christians, you see, God is like the second father. For Christians, he forges an unbreakable bond of forgiveness through Christ's death on the cross. That is justification. And then he builds on that unbreakable father-child bond of love to make us good. That is sanctification. Actually, the two fit together perfectly. He only could make us good if he could totally forgive all of our sins. We are transformed. Sin is doubly defeated in our life as we first understand God's total forgiveness of us and as we second live in the light of that. So there follows something uh, very, very important that I want to probably spend the majority of our time on this morning. From that truth. We are not, then, transformed by the law, as the Bible puts it. Look again at verse uh, 3, the first bit of What the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. The law, says Paul, was powerless. In other words, it was simply telling us how we ought to behave, but it actually didn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve. Why, says Paul? It was weakened by the sinful nature. In my view, actually, the NIV over-translates that word and misses much of what Paul wants to say. The word is literally flesh, as you will see in the, uh, uh, in the footnotes. And you'll see in those footnotes in the NIV as well. It comes up again and again in these, in these verses. And to call it the sinful nature, in many ways, steals Paul's thunder and makes him at times say uh, truisms, like the sinful nature is sinful. The point is, 
that flesh is just what we're naturally made of. Sometimes in the Bible it's actually used positively or, and, and, and certainly uh, uh, neutrally. We are flesh and blood. We are ordinary human beings. We are flesh. The law, he says, no, simply telling us what to do, achieves a lot less than we might hope because of the way we are. Because of our natural state. The law couldn't get us right with God, says verse 3, because of the weakness of our flesh. We never could achieve, achieve sinlessness and so we never could get right with God without Christ's death on the cross. But we miss something else as well. The law never could help us in the way that we live after we become Christians because of the weakness of our flesh. Verses 3 and 4 fit together And verse 4 says that now what God has done means that we do not live according to the flesh. Do you see that in verse 4? Well, he's already said the flesh is far too weak to overcome the law. It cannot be the law that helps us now not to live according to the flesh. Actually, Paul explains what he's talking about, has already explained what he's talking about in in chapter 7. So he's only alluding back to it here. If you see in verse 2 of chapter 8, he talks of this uh, um, captivity that uh, we need to break through, break free of as the, the law of sin and death at the end of verse 2. And if you look just back a few verses at chapter 7 verse 23, which of course in Paul's mind is not a previous chapter at all because uh, he didn't have chapter headings, um, that uh, the law of sin is there again in, in chapter 7, verse 23. He's using the word law here in a slightly different way. You can use the word law in two ways in English and you could in Paul's day. And most of the time when Paul's talking about the law, he's talking about um, uh, God's requirement of us. Right, we talk about the law of England. But uh, sometimes he speaks of, uh, uh, uses the word law uh, in a similar way to which we use the word, uh, the, the phrase in the law of gravity. This is a fundamental rule about how the universe works. And that's the only way to explain what Paul is saying about. Um, uh, uh, law in, uh, verses, in chapter 7 verses 21 to 24. Let me read it through to you slowly and explain what he's saying as he talks about his struggle to be good. He says, So I find this law, this gravitational law, this law of how the universe works, I find this law actually is at work When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being I delight in God's law, that is, God's 
requirements of how we should behave, but I see another gravitational law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind, that is my mental assent to the fact that I should uh, uh, live as God calls me to, the law of my mind, actually making me a prisoner of the gravitational law of sin at work within my bodies, body, members. What a wretched man am I, he says. Who will rescue me from this body of death? I mean, some people have suggested he's so pessimistic about his ability to uh, be, be uh, um, good in this passage. He must be talking about the time before he was a Christian. But he actually quite specifically uses the present tense. He's talking about something that, that happens in him from time to time, even now. We'll see, and, and uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 makes it very plain, it is, not, it is not the ideal, it is not God's purpose for him, but it is an experience that he has now. that he sees an instruction about how he should behave. And um, uh, on his own he thinks, I'd like to do that, I'd like to behave in that way, I should behave in that way. But he finds a law that is as immutable as God's written requirements, a law of gravity working in his flesh, in his body, in his natural self that actually rebels against that. So that he finds himself unable to break that gravitational law. Like Icarus, he might fly for a while, but he'll soon crash in disaster. In chapter 7, Paul's very careful to, uh, to point out that the law itself is not bad at all. It's entirely good in telling us what God requires of us. It's just extremely limited in its ability to achieve anything. It can identify sin, but it cannot do the good work of killing sin. Indeed, he says, paradoxically, it excites sin. He says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was until it was clarified for me in the Bible, and then suddenly I found that I was coveting all the more. Whenever I see a door that says no entry, there's no one watching. I always want to try the handle, don't you? The main thing I want is to get into our minds is that law on its own, the law, God's requirements of us, will not make us good. Now I wonder how much misery, how much heartache, how much, how much Christian moral failure would be avoided if only we could learn that. We gaily sing about that first way that God defeats law, uh, defeats uh, sin, of which the law was useless and we never realised that actually law is useless defeating it in the second way. You may be able to stop yourself 
seething with some law-based moral restraint. You may be able even to reduce the number of times that you uh, meditate in a covetous way on other people's possessions, but you will not actually generate contentment in your heart. You may be able to prevent yourself murdering with some, uh, 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 with, with a bit of law. You may even be able to uh, uh, stop yourself and discipline yourself, not to disparage others and be angry about others. But God's law on its own will not enable us to love our enemies, to pray from the bottom of our hearts for those who persecute us, to forgive our brothers and sisters. It just will not happen. We may be able to stop ourselves committing adultery, but they, we will not stop lust. We may be able to uh, uh, control the worst excesses of a caustic tongue, but it will not stop loveless thoughts. We may keep ourselves from the visible idols of money and power, but the secret idols of our hearts will still reign. Law is useless. Rules do not help. Because, you see, our natural self is terrifyingly powerful at leading us astray. It's interesting, the wider world understands that so clearly. Their solution is that therefore we must redefine what's right and wrong to accommodate the way that our natural self feels drawn, especially the last 50 years in terms of sexual morals. We must, of course, allow abortion. We must, we, we must uh, um, redefine where sex is appropriate. We must do all of those things because, frankly, we can't control this. At one level, the Bible says, Amen, you can't. Controlling our flesh with law is like caging a lion and, lion and trying to pretend it's a kitten. On the contrary, it will pace that cage, it will throw itself at the bars, it will terrify us with its roaring and sooner or later we will find that the bars are not strong enough. Do not try to reform your, law, your, your life with law. It will simply fail. Transformation, says the Apostle, is by the Spirit. Verse 2, Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 4, God um, sent Jesus to redeem us in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. There is actually only one way to overcome a gravitational force. It's actually by putting a body of greater gravitational force on the other side. And that's what God has done. By his Spirit, God has come and draws our hearts away from those things. 
verse uh, 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature, that nature desires. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. When he talks about mind there, he doesn't just mean intellectual descent, assent. He means the centre of our purpose, the centre of our, our will, the centre of our delights, what we meditate on, what really captivates our heart. If we are just flesh, then that will always, of course, our, our, our hearts will always, of course, be gravitationally drawn towards what that flesh desires. But if God's Spirit is working, then that gravitational power will be overcome. And now, he says, as God's Spirit works, our sins can be overcome. The work of the Spirit, actually, he says, is absolutely essential if we want to call ourselves Christians. Verse 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. There is something awesome there. There is some, a warning to us. Just because we have uh, apparently asked God to forgive us, if there has not been a transformation in our life of any sort, if there is no evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives, we cannot call ourselves Christians. But there is something deeply exciting there. If we are Christians, then God has already placed that gravitational body there in our hearts and will draw us away from those things, if only actually we allow him to do so. Work of the Spirit, he says, is absolutely fundamental basis of our hope. If the, the Spirit, verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. No, there is no escaping it. If we do not have the Holy Spirit working in us, we have no hope of victory over sins now and no hope of eternal life in the future. Full stop. But if we do, we have the key to the door. If we do, we actually can see a defeat of sin which is more profound than anything outside of God's work, personal work. So let me say, if you're not yet a Christian here this morning, perhaps you do long to be good, perhaps you do long to, uh, uh, to live a good life and be on good terms with God, do not try to do it by law. Ask for God's forgiveness. Let God's Spirit work in you. Let Him thrill you with who He is so that your heart is actually drawn by the gravity of His glory, by the beauty of His holiness, by the, the, the wondrousness of His love. And you will be a new person. 
But if you are a Christian, this is the way to be changed. Remember what the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians? Chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. God really changes us and produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in our hearts. Who needs a cage? Let the life of God simply grow in our heart and you. Next week we're going to look more at how God's Spirit works in us. This week, let's learn. Do not use law to be good, but simply allow God's Spirit to do His work.